Geopolitics on the Move. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast. I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russia and Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the graduate initiative in Russian studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The initial shocks of the coronavirus pandemic are waning, and global life is slowly getting back on track. Though change in response to COVID is inevitable, there's a growing sense that everything will continue as before, but only worse. The list of geopolitical challenges is intensifying. Nationalism, the clash of identities, the fragmentation of the world economy, and the erosion of the liberal economic model. As do the responses. Demands for greater sovereignty, dismantling arms control regimes, and escalating competition among major powers, especially between the United States and China. COVID-19 didn't create any of these. It only reinforced them. Perhaps the pandemic's most profound impact will be on the relations between people, society, and the state. COVID hit Russia at a domestic crossroad. As the virus began to ravage the world, Russia started to reform its constitution and modify its state system. Like elsewhere, the pandemic didn't torpedo this agenda. It simply complicated the path forward. Even without the unexpected upheavals, it was clear that Russian politics was entering into a new stage. Now the search for a new balance of geopolitical forces will occur in completely different conditions. What does Russia think? How much do Russian perspectives on international issues in this new moment differ from those of the United States? Are convergent, if not common, perceptions of the future possible, or will the divergences widen? In the following discussions, Geopolitics and the Move will address these issues with some of the best Russian, European, and American thinkers tackling these contemporary challenges. When the Cold War ended, Russia joining a greater Europe only seemed natural. Thirty years later, this idea has vanished without a trace. But it's not that Russia's participation in Europe has become irrelevant. Rather, Europeans are worried about the survival of the European Union project. What is in store for Russia-EU relations in a world increasingly dominated by Sino-American confrontation? What remains of the expectations of 1989? Here's Timofey Bordachev, Academic Supervisor for the Center for Comprehensive European and International Studies at the Higher School of Economics, with his analysis. Just to uh, start our conversation, I'd like to have both of you introduce yourselves. So, uh, Timofey, why don't you start? Uh, I am Timothy Bordyshev. Uh, I work for the National Research University High School of Economics as academic supervisor of their Center for European and International Studies, which is the biggest uh, foreign policy and for international economy research think tank within our university. Uh, and I also a program director uh, in the Valdai Club Foundation, where I am covering the 
wider multilateral international issues of multilateral cooperation, global governance, but also of Eurasia. So I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, editor of Russian Global Affairs and research director of the Valdai Club. Wonderful. So, um, you know, in, in kind of looking at materials and, and coming up with some questions uh, to talk about today, I was really drawn to this uh, Valdai Re Club report that both of you were co-authors of with a couple of other people. Um, you, you wrote one report two years ago called Living in a Crumbling World. And then recently, about two months ago or so, you, you published another report titled Staying Sane in a Crumbling World. So um, I thought we'd start by just having you, both of you, talk about uh, what has happened in the last two years that has created this shift from just living in a crumbling world to just trying to stay sane in a crumbling world. And why don't you start, Timofey? Uh, yes, thank you. Well, what has happened, first of all, the world was uh, continuing to crumble. And we realized that we need to proceed from the diagnosis, from the analytical approach to the world events towards a bit of the normative approach, meaning trying to base certain recommendations and look for the certain solutions which will help the foreign policies of our respective member states, respective states, to be more adequate, more peaceful, and more contributing to the stability than to the instability. Uh, we do believe that because of their international developments and structural changes uh, within the international politics, the behavior of the states will not be characterized by the particular, particular responsibility. So in the new report, uh, instead of only describing what is going on or giving our projection uh, and vision of how it can develop, we are trying to formulate certain criteria and certain settlements which might be working given the generally very pessimistic international conditions. Can you give a, a couple of examples of this this crumbling world and uh, and perhaps how one might stay sane in response to to them? Well, one of our responses was, of course, about the role of the international institutions, and uh, first and foremost, the United Nations as the international agencies, which is based on both realist, to say, realist and liberal approaches, which combines together the power of the five most military powerful states in the world, but at the same time provides some opportunities for the relative justice to be distributed among the other less influential and less powerful members of the international community. And another response, instead of looking more closely and working on the United Nations, the other advice was to address uh, their particular issues with the particular international agencies and uh, particular ways of cooperation. And one of our, the examples which we have given in our report was about the uh, possible international response to pandemic challenges. We do believe that these sort of challenges are going to stay with us. Uh, because of the nature of reasons, the better 
connections, better connectivity between the different parts of the walls, which means the diseases which happen and which emerge in the very distant parts of our planet can be easily brought to Europe, to Russia, or to the United States by, by everybody. So we think that uh, this sort of challenge might be a sort of the perfect enemy for all of us, fighting which we can at least, at least within this very narrow but still important for the security of the ordinary people and survival of the states as uh, responsible institutions, responsible and in front of their citizens. To your question, why uh, we change slightly our mind uh, within two years? Uh, this second part was written uh, this spring, and you know, and all of us can imagine, the atmosphere in March, April, May this year. And we had a feeling on the one hand that the whole world uh, is getting mad completely. Uh, at the same time, uh, this um, hypothesis, which we put uh, 2018, that institutions connected to the second part of uh, second half of uh, 20th century which continued after the end of the cold war uh, with uh, several problems and uh, dysfunctions but still those institutions ceased to work in a way as they uh, were designed and in this regard uh, we uh, described the uh, crumbling world, world uh, 2018. Uh, actually, uh, uh, already in that report, we stated that uh, most likely uh, this institutional framework uh, will uh, never recover. Uh, but two years after the pandemic, just uh, made it visual, visualized the whole development, this uh, uh, paradoxical stance of uh, international affairs when the world remains completely interconnected, but totally fragmented at the same time, which is uh, something which we did not uh, witness before, but uh, which uh, most likely will continue after. Um, I'd like you like to go a bit deeper into this idea that you you state very very explicitly in the Staying Sane report uh, that quote the era of the liberal world order, which runs from about the late 1980s to the mid 2010s, is over. And you know, as both of you know, this is a, a, a quite, there's lots of hand wringing and, and head scratching here in the United States about this concept of is it over? What what's going on? Um, you know, so I'd like to ask two things. First is, can you define more clearly what you mean by the liberal world order? Uh, let's, let's start with that, to have you both define your opinions of what the liberal world order is, and then I'll ask, uh, you know, what are the implications? I'm not only giving lots of attention to this topic, but maybe I'm one of those uh, very relatively few in Russia, who is uh, optimistic with the general evaluation of the international order, which emerged after the end of the Cold War, uh, which we call now liberal world order. I think that it was a very good institutional and normative settlement, uh, which uh, brought together the norms and values developed within the Western community after the Second World War. And at the same time, uh, it did not exclude the hardcore 
regarding hardcore institutions like United Nations Security Council, which are based on their uh, distribution of power in its most important dimension, the nuclear, the nuclear power, which is the ultimate power uh, among the states. So uh, I think that the liberal board order was not was not a, an order in in terms of the traditional meaning of this notion, like the Stalin or Versailles or Vienna order, and it was an institutional settlement, very good institutional settlement. But at the same time, this settlement helped to uh, help to go through the wider, wider international order, which I would suggest to call atomic international order, which emerged with the arrival of the nuclear weapons after the Second World War, and which brought the ultimate structural condition of the international system, uh, that five states are, in military terms, so powerful among the others that no any states can, can reach them in terms of the military capacities. So five states which are permanent members of the United Nations Security Council stay outside, in a way, outside of the rest of the international community. And the general impossibility of the, of the general common war, which has happened many times before, so this impossibility of this war is the main structural characteristic of the order in which we are living now. So, and the liberal world order was just one of the institutional and normative settlements, uh, which, I mean, it was based on the institutions and norms developed by the West after the Second World War. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, everyone was invited Everyone who was willing and able to take the basic conditions was, was invited. So, and the internet liberal world order, which we are, to which we are saying goodbye now, I think, though reports have been many times exaggerated, it was, in a way, the combined product of, the, of those international tendencies after the Second World War. Is the, the crumbling part... Is it because of because with the collapse of the, with the end of the Cold War, you have you know here uh, a brief moment of a um, a unipolar world where the United States is dominant, and of course it it exercises this dominance after nine eleven uh, quite forcefully. I mean, it starts before, but quite forcefully since nine eleven. Um, is it part of the the breaking of this world order from U.S. Unilateralism on the one hand, but also the rise of, say, a China and a re, you know, recuperation of Russia on the other hand that's contributing. And then, of course, you have other states like India, et cetera, that are rising. That's that's leading to the destabilization of this world order. Uh, well, the liberal world order consisted of norms and institutions. Among the norms, two are most important. The first, the freedoms, the freedoms of movement of capital and goods. And uh, the, other, the other norm was the non-application of force among the participating states. And the institutions were the concrete instruments to sustain, to make, to make states uh, more prepared and willing to go for their 
concrete se concrete settlements uh, regarding the particular particular issues. Uh, so basically, the crumbling uh, of the of the world, which the crumbling, uh, living in the crumbling world, was about the crumbling of the institutions in the very general sense of this word. So the crumbling of the institutions uh, as the big uh, complex uh, of their different sorts of arrangements which existed before and to which we we are used to. And uh, the, the challenge is how do we adapt our foreign policies, and in, including and internal policies as well, uh, to, the, to the inevitable collapse of these institutions. If, if, I, if, I may, if I may add to, to, your, to your question about uh, crumbling when it started, of course, uh, a Russian uh, struggle for recovery and come back to international stage as a significant power was a factor. Of course, Chinese rise was uh, absolutely crucial. India and other countries with growing ambitions as well. But I would dare to say that the liberal world order started to crumble not outside the core, but inside. And when people in United States, in Western Europe, uh, started to ask questions about globalization, ask uh, 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 themselves and uh, political leaders, uh, why do we need it? What do we get out from this? Uh, that was beginning of uh, end of the liberal order because they ceased to feel that this global system based on uh, freedoms, as Timothy said, uh, favors them. They started to feel that it favors somebody else. Whether it was true or not, there is another matter. But it was the case of perception. And when this perception came, then Trump, Brexit, you name it. May I just add something to what has been said by Fyodor? Uh, given his example of their, of their problems coming from, from inside of the core, then from outside. In my view, as somebody who, has, who is doing European, European integration, European studies for 25 years, in my view, uh, their emergence, the introduction of the European currency, Euro, was uh, a challenge to the liberal world order not less than Chinese or Russian revisionism. And why is that? Uh, because the introduction of the alternative center for their redistribution of the public goods in the, on the global scale was structurally undermining the settlement which emerged after the end of the Cold War with the United States ultimate leadership in the center, in the middle. I see. So th this, this leads to my other question, and that is, you know, with the crumbling of this liberal world order, where does it leave, you know, your the EU's hegemony over the Western, over the European continent, and of course Russia? Well, I don't think that there was a European Union hegemony in Europe. I think that European Union sized the opportunities which uh, emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the system of Soviet Union satellites, that I think that the Western European countries realized that they have a unique chance to extend uh, their physical and economic boundaries of the territory which they do control economically and politically. And they have taken this opportunity 
at the expense of Russia, of course, but it really doesn't matter at the expense of whom. So, but uh, it was not about the emergence of the European hegemony because it could not be complete without uh, the Europe's ability to exercise their security control, to exercise its own, uh, even, to, even to exercise its own security, which is still uh, provided by the United States, even nowadays. So uh, the thing with the problem with, the, with Europe was that the, water, the world order, which emerged after the end of the Cold War, was very comfortable for Europe, the most comfortable arrangement, the most comfortable circumstances which Europeans could even imagine ever before in their history. And uh, because of these European, Western European countries, first of all, and the European Union in general, did not have any any burning requirement, any burning need to be more innovative and to be more forward-looking regarding on of uh, how the wider regional security arrangements or challenges will look after this momentum of the power monopoly will inevitably pass away. You know, uh, I think just uh, this these days, these weeks, we uh, see an extremely interesting illustration of uh, how actually uh, complicated uh, the whole uh, uh, what you call, what you call hegemony, EU hegemony in Europe uh, is. Uh, President Trump announced that uh, he is going to withdraw part of uh, U.S. Uh, troops uh, stationed in Germany. Uh, and he claimed that uh, Germany uh, doesn't pay enough for these troops and the uh, uh, United States do protect uh, Germany from Russia while Germans uh, buy uh, uh, enormous amounts of gas from Russia and pay a lot of money and so, 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 so forth. Okay, this is Trump's position is very much uh, different from uh, what we uh, used to hear from the United States, but fair enough. Uh, much more interesting is reaction from Germany when politicians there, both government and even opposition, uh, they are absolutely furious and they say you should not leave, you should stay. At the same time, they say, uh, I think Foreign Minister Mr. Moss said that uh, it's not true that uh, American troops defend us from Russia. We don't need defense from Russia. Russia is not, not an enemy. Uh, why Americans have troops in Germany? Because they needed to project power to uh, Middle East, Africa, and so on. And uh, they should stay because this is a pillar of transatlantic relationship and so on. At the end of the day, this discussion sounds to us, looking from Russia, a little bit uh, surreal. Why do they need American troops just to help Americans to project power uh, to Middle East? If it's not against Russia, then of course the question, uh, why should they stay uh, there uh, th 30 plus years after the end of the Cold War? And even more, uh, in, in Russia, we uh, frequently have those uh, 
discussions about uh, European strategic autonomy, whether Europe will uh, liberate itself from American occupation. And, uh, but Europe doesn't want to do it. Europe wants to have American troops for reasons which uh, uh, no one in Western Europe can explain. And so in Poland, yes, I understand. They, they know why uh, they need Americans. In the Baltic states, yes, but not in the Western Europe. So very strange. So where does this, with this crumbling uh, world, uh, liberal world order, where does this leave Russia? You know, as, as someone who is, you know, a, a participant and part of it, more or less, uh, you know, in terms of its institutional participation, where does it leave it, it now? So if I just want one phrase, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, Professor Mersheimer uh, wrote an article uh, 30 years ago, why we uh, soon will miss the Cold War. And he explained that uh, the Cold War was such a well-organized international uh, period that uh, we might be missing that. So now, <laughs> I think in Russia, uh, some of colleagues can uh, start to write uh, articles why we soon will miss a liberal world order. Because in this world order, which was not created by Russia, which was not supposed to serve Russian interests, but actually Russia felt rather comfortable. And in this new situation, which is coming, so far, uh, Russian political and strategic community is rather confused how to position Russia in this completely ungoverned uh, environment. I think that uh, one of the possibly biggest achievements of the international settlement, which we call liberal world order, was and still is that we don't have any major power which is revolutionary. We don't have any major power which wants, which is willing to go for the war in order to protect its interests and values or in order to get justice from the rest of the community. As it has happened with Germany twice during the 20th century. Uh, so now we don't have neither Russia nor China uh, in such a position um, that uh, is pressing them to demand a revolution, revolutionary change. And Russian policy, as well as Chinese policy, has never been revolutionary. It has been revisionist. But with regard to their general uh, existing settlement, which they did not want to abolish. And by the way, our Chinese friends for many, many times said this. They said that they don't want to change the existing world order, uh, being one of the greatest, great, greatest benefiters from this order in economic terms. Russia was speaking about the international institutions, which are one of the which is one of the pillars of this order, and but not with a revolutionary, but with a revisionist uh, approach and revisionist argument. So uh, I agree with Fyodor that uh, our country uh, is not particularly encouraged by, uh, by the changes and uh, by the erosion of the international institutions. And, and what, you know, we've been speaking mostly about, you know, larger powers, you know, Russia, the United States, China, the EU. But what about smaller states, particularly like border states, you know, the Poland, even border states on, in the, Europe, the EU periphery? How would this uh, affect them? Because it seems to me that the liberal world order also provided some stability and protection for, you know, 
them being in between all of these major powers. Certainly, uh, and uh, I can understand that uh, those in between, they feel uh, quite uncomfortable now, uh, especially because uh, the current situation is also in between. Uh, We are uh, gradually moving away from uh, liberal uh, principles, uh, whether we liked them or not, but they are disappearing. While uh, we are not approaching uh, the classical great power sphere of the influence rivalry, when countries in between at least could count that if they join uh, one or another um, sphere, uh, they can uh, can be safe and, and protected. So I think the, the main discussion about, uh, for example, uh, Eastern Europe or uh, post-Soviet countries like Ukraine, Moldova, is that they built whole policies starting from uh, 1990s uh, on the assumption that if they, uh, in one or another way, join this NATO sphere, then at least they will have guarantees that in case of Russian uh, uh, resurgency, um, they will be uh, protected by, by NATO. But uh, you certainly, Sean, you certainly re- remember the famous uh, statement by Newt Gingrich during Trump election campaign, which was, I think, absolutely great. When he was asked about NATO, uh, he uh, said that, uh, do you uh, seriously believe that we will start third World War III because of suburb uh, of St. Petersburg, he meant Estonia. And of course, in this situation, when no one uh, uh, is sure that commitments and obligations matter, be it in the liberal world order or in the old good alliance-based policy, uh, that's very nervous and, uh, so to say, destabilizing to all of uh, participants, especially uh, the smaller ones. Well, but but at the same time, the domination of their international institutions and collective security institutions has been very too, too, too comfortable to be disciplining the participating states. So maybe we can believe that those countries in between, as you said, uh, might, uh, might turn to be more innovative in terms of their diplomacy, diplomatic skills and abilities, while realizing that their security does not depend anymore on their belonging to the certain institutions but more depends on how their national interest fits into their national interests and security considerations of the other powers, regardless of where these powers are, in Europe, in their neighborhood, in in Russia, in Europe, or in the United States. So in this case, if they will learn how to to adjust their national interest and their survival to the survival goals of those who matter, more in international politics uh, depends uh, depends the future of the of the responsibilities uh, the, the the other the other powers will, will take upon them regarding these states. Uh, so I think that for those countries, including Europe, by the way, uh, including Europe, their their ability to to act outside of the institutions and within the bilateral sets of the relationships uh, becomes uh, more important now. 
in a certain in a certain way, I think that we have exaggerated the role of the institutions during the the period after the end of the Cold War, and we forgot that institutions themselves are based on the certain on the certain very important structural factors. And in order to have stable settlements, we need to we need to address not the institutional capacities, but uh, the but the, but the structural factors. Uh, of, the, of the international politics. Yeah, and this leads me to turn to uh, something that you wrote recently, Timofey, um, on the, the international institutions and the response to the, to the pandemic. Uh, you write, quote, the European Union is the most advanced institution of our time, but now we see that it is, ex- it is experiencing serious difficulties. Then, you know, a paragraph or so later, you add... Uh, In contrast, incidentally, the Eurasian Economic Union, which brings together Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Russia, seems to be doing rather well in this regard. Um, What what accounts for this this difference, and and why is the European Union seem to be not, you know, is experiencing these difficulties, whereas the Eurasian Economic Union isn't? Uh, well, to start with, uh, of course, one, one can say that the two institutions have different uh, start levels. The Eurasian Economic Union uh, is considered and judged from the very much, much lower demands position than, than the European Union. Uh, well, going more in depth, for, for the Russian foreign policy, the Eurasian Economic Union and cooperation with these four countries, as it is now, is a very unique new experience, which Russia never had before uh, for the centuries of its sovereign history. Uh, Russia has been relying on its military capability to provide, to assure the direct power control over the periphery, over the crucial periphery. Uh, And Russia has never actually needed to build any relationships based not on the power control but on the on the benefit and on the taking into consideration the, the, the mutual interests with these countries and with these territories. Uh, for already for almost 10 years Russia started to develop these new capacities within Russia's foreign policy. Uh, this process is not complete yet. And uh, we can give many arguments why this process will not be as successful as we wished it to be, judging from the perspective on the institutional approach to the international settlements, to the international relations. But nowadays, uh, Eurasian Economic Union is their institution in making which provides some important assurance mechanisms for the participating member states. First of all, with regard to their sovereign sovereign rights and abilities. European Union is the brilliant example of the intergovernmental cooperation in contemporary world. We definitely do have an internal balance of power within the European Union, we know and we see that European Union law provides uh, clear arrangements and provides clear articles uh, which assure that 
countries which are bigger and stronger, like Germany or France, have more say than their smaller, mem- smaller partners. But at the same time, the institutional arrangements helps everybody to get, to get what it wants and to get, to get a relatively just treatment. I mean, relatively just in comparison with the treatments these countries could get under their other international circumstances without the European Union, without European integration. Now, what we do have now, now we have the erosion of the European Union institutional capacities and increase of their intergovernmental capacities of the European Union. And as soon as we go from the institutional, from the joint institutions towards their intergovernmental policy making, we again face the situation when power matters. And when more stronger governments, like German one, for example, can get more than their partners. And this uh, ability of the stronger governments is not supported and is not adjusted towards to the, to the general good by the institutions. So within the Eurasian, Europe, Eurasian Economic Union, the common institutions are, very, are yet very underdeveloped. Uh, but uh, the governments during this pandemic crisis, the governments of the five states, have shown uh, their very good ability to coordinate their policies. We did not see any hostile action or action which can be considered as a relatively hostile uh, regarding their national response measures. We haven't seen Russian government expelling the guest workers from these countries. We seen the Russian government taking responsibility for these guest workers on the Russian territory instead of send, sending them home. And we seen that the other member states have shown their understanding of this Russian behavior. Is this, did we already see this, um, your description of the more interdynamics of within states, within the EU, we already were seeing this, it seems to me, with the the economic shock of two thousand eight, right? With the with the financial collapses of of Spain, Greece, uh, and Italy, and how it, it seemed that uh, you know individual states within the EU were either using their power, like Germany, to put pressure on the southern states, or even taking measures within themselves. What has happened during this Eurozone crisis in the beginning of, of the previous decade was what was important, what, that the economic policies of the certain governments, like Southern European states, Spain, Italy, Greece, first of all, among the biggest. So their economic policies have been taken under control, not by the European Union institutions in Brussels, but by the other member states. And this is a certain illustration of injustice, which started to emerge within this complex intergovernmental uh, settlement in Europe. It could be absolutely fine if uh, the U- European, say, European Commission in Brussels could have instructed Italian government how it should conduct its economic policy. But Brussels was deprived uh, of such a capability. Instead, the intergovernmental institutions 
led by Germany and France, have taken these sort of the decisions. And this, I think, for me, is the most worrying indicator of the present European development. Because it, it almost is a reversion back to, you know, the great power status of those states in, you know, the early part of the 20th, late 19th and early part of the 20th century. In a way, yes. In a way, yes. In a new form, uh, with the new dimensions of power uh, taken into the game, uh, but in a way, yes. Yeah, maybe uh, if we uh, are back to Eurasian Economic Union for, for a while, uh, uh, Timofey provided a great, uh, so to say, theoretical framework. I, I can uh, turn it back to <laughs> uh, more uh, applied politics. Uh, two points. Uh, one, to put it very bluntly, of course the whole composition of Eurasia, of the former Soviet Union space, as it emerged after collapse of the Soviet Union, is a collection of countries, all of which should still prove uh, that they are able to exist. Uh, because uh, collapse of the Soviet Union came rather unexpected to all uh, participants, including those who, who, who uh, did struggle for uh, destruction of the Soviet Union, but... Uh, uh, I guess that one year before, no one expected that the victory would come so easily. And, of course, it created uh, a bunch of countries which had no tradition to live in these borders, including Russian Federation itself. And everything which happened after, uh, and it's almost for 30 years now, that was... Uh, process of adaptation to this new composition with attempts to avoid bigger uh, exercise to redraw uh, borders. Not completely was successful, but uh, in, in, uh, basically uh, countries uh, kept uh, borders uh, as uh, they emerged in uh, 1991. But of course this process is, is, is uh, th this is work in progress. And uh, feeling that those borders are not uh, final <clears throat> does exist in, in, in Russia, and I guess it does exist in uh, uh, other uh, countries as well, uh, most of them. Why it matters? Because uh, Eurasian integration uh, is a way to uh, smoothly avoid this uh, very painful issue about, uh, as Putin uh, put it uh, recently uh, quite um, uh, bluntly that uh, certain nations uh, left Soviet Union with gifts uh, given by Russian people. So that was uh, quite a strong statement. Uh, it was immediately denied by his press secretary the day after. He did not mean any, any <laughs> claims, but still, that was said. And I think that this is, this is quite important for uh, all countries involved to understand that Eurasian integration with all uh, these functions and uh, troubles uh, within and uh, this process uh, will most likely be even more complicated in, in the foreseeable future. But this is a guarantee that all uh, those relationships will be settled 
in in a modern way, in a way of uh, liberal world order, and not in a way how it happened in 19th century, for example. So this is this is very much politically uh, incorrect to point to that. But I think that everybody understands uh, that behind the whole trend, this this is uh, the, the main the main issue. That's really interesting because it it speaks to the particular nature of uh this of the soviet union as an as an empire in the sense that it did pour uh, a lot of resources in developing its periphery and and modernizing it and then you know you know i i know in the story it it does create resent it created resentment uh, amongst the russian population but i could also see it being a problem in the sense of now how do you you know, maintain these bases that were developed uh, during the Soviet period, right? Uh, I think that the experience after the collapse of the Soviet Union has uh, has convinced many in Russia that it is better to cooperate economically than to take a direct security responsibility. As one of our state high officials said, we either cooperate in Central Asia or we will fight there in 10 years' time. I don't think that the Russian government wants to dispatch the, the limited res- national resources towards the military control of this region, which is facing Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran. So I think that the Russian government's, uh, government's, uh, government really wants to, to, to support uh, the conditions under which these these local regimes will be uh, both friendly to Russia and uh, sustainable. I'm curious about the Russia, the Soviet Union, and Russia's relationship to these international institutions that you know we see in crisis. Can you uh, both give a, a general kind of overview of what that relationship has been since uh, the end of the Second World War? Well, I think that uh, Soviet Union believed uh, that certain permanent uh, institutional settlements should exist. And the uh, Soviet Union was, was convinced in this belief by the fact that it was uh, the member state of the highest international body, permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, along with the other, other four, con- four nuclear powers. And uh, I think that during the Cold War, Soviet Union and uh, Russian foreign policy elite developed a certain culture of the institutionalized cooperation and interaction. Still, of course, as for any great power, these institutions have been taken instrumentally. But I think that in this term, in the terms of the balance between commitment and instrumental approach, Russia is somewhere in between. Europe and the United States. And what do you mean in between? Well, I think that uh, Russia is taking institutions uh, less seriously than Europeans, but definitely much more serious serious than Americans. Uh, the, uh, uh, if if we take uh, Russia after collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, it's quite interesting that uh, uh, in 1990s and even in uh, in 2000s. Uh, in uh, Putin's first term and even probably his second term, uh, Russia was actually ready and willing to find a place 
in uh, we can uh, call it uh, liberal world order or this arrangement, uh, post-Cold War arrangement. But anyway, in Russian debate, uh, it was no other idea, actually, but to find a place there, a proper place. And of course, the whole uh, misunderstanding started because a uh, Russian idea about uh, its proper place and, say, American or European idea about Russian proper place were completely different. But Russia did not aspire uh, to create something alternative, actually. And uh, again, that was not just in, in 1990s when Russia was at uh, the weakest point, but also um, when Putin came to power in early 2000s, I would say he made a significant effort to bring Russia closer to this uh, uh, Western-led uh, international arrangement. Maybe it was utopian, most likely it was utopian, and I can again refer to uh, Timofey's uh, uh, research uh, about the role of nuclear power and nuclear um, uh, arms. Uh, so Russia remained a nuclear superpower, and that uh, killed actually any hypothetical possibility for Russia to become part of greater Europe or wider Europe, or how it was called. But, but still, uh, Russia was never a country which wanted to destroy post-Cold War arrangement and to replace it with something else. And now I think the, the, the resentment is partially because of that, because we, at a certain point, quite for quite a long time, Russia really wanted to be part of that and was not uh, accepted. And then, of course, it turned back. With, the, with this crisis or crumbling of these international institutions, and we see this in, in the, with the pandemic, where it seems that you know organizations like the WHO, of course, Trump just pulled funding from it, the United Nations, they don't seem to be having the weight and presence that I would imagine they would have had, say, if this pandemic was in the 1960s or the 1970s. So what you have is the resurgence of the state. The state, you know, 20 years ago, I remember all of the discussion of globalization. It was about the almost like the withering away of the state for these international, supranational institutions. But now we, the state is back. Um, so what are the implications of this, this reversal uh, and resurgence of the state as, a, as an actor and an organizing principle? Well, I think that uh, since we are living in the world where the state is the only one, one natural and legitimate actor with regard to the citizens' rights and commitments and assuring the ordinary citizens' freedoms, and the natural interests. So we're living in this sort of the world. So of course, when the existing existing institutions and norms are crumbling, eroding, uh, the state is back because uh, those agents who could have done this work are not present anymore and are not able to do this work for the state. So. I think that this reemergence of the state is a reaction, is a response to the general structural change in uh, the international politics and uh, global economy. Uh, the states will, of course, need to look at the institutions and to renegotiate 
the concrete institutional settlements. I still believe that the United States are not going to withdraw from the World Health Organization, but want to renegotiate and to change those uncomfortable for the U.S. Uh, realities within this institution. The excessive Chinese influence and the Chinese presence within the general debate and within the World Health Organization decision-making and opinion-making. So I think that this U.S. behavior reflects that and shows us that institutions are not gods and are not something which we can blame or which we can applaud. The institutions are the instruments in the hands of the states. And uh, complain about institutions' inability is, in my view, the same as to complain, to complain about inability of our, of our kitchen furniture to cook. To cook dinner instead of us <laughs> in a <the> bedroom. <laughs> so this is up to states to activate institutions, but they will activate only as when uh, their interests are going to be properly defended. Yeah, you know, talking about this, I, I, I thought that uh, uh, U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, uh, he has a very special style of expression and disliked by many, but. Sometimes he plays a role as uh, uh, this uh, personage from uh, fairy tale, a kid who says that uh, the king uh, is naked. He speaks all the time about deals, bad deals, good deals, and that was his uh, trademark from the beginning. And in a way, he is right, because he instinctively feels that the previous deal, big deal, so the, the deal, uh, international deal, uh, is uh, is over. He believes that that deal was bad. Somebody else believes that that deal was good. But anyway, that deal is over. And Trump is a very uh, primitive way. He represents this approach that it, new deals should be should be made. And I think that this is coming to back to your question about states. That's exactly what all states feel or say or or try to do to renegotiate deals. Of course, uh, each country, each state has um, uh, different uh, capacities. Somebody uh, of them uh, should just accept deals uh, made by somebody else. But still, at the same time, the amount of those who really believe they, they can do their own deals is growing. And we see that many countries, which uh, used to be uh, just parts of somebody uh, big power spheres of influence, now they play independent games, even not being very big. Yes, I, yes, I just wanted to add, and, and Fyodor said it partially, uh, that, for example, take a look at, look at Turkey's behavior. Uh, when, when NATO emerged and in the heyday of the liberal world order, Turkey could achieve all its limited goals acting through these two institutions like uh, with NATO or uh, in cooperation with European Union. Uh, even though Turkey is still now member of NATO, its international behavior shows that there is a certain very high confidence in its ability to become to act independently, regardless of uh, the opinion of the, of the major states. 
So, and I think that this Turkish behavior and behavior maybe of the, some other states, so the Persian Gulf monarchies, some other countries, uh, is a very interesting indicator of uh, on how the the world, how the international politics will look uh, in the situation when uh, no country will be able to provide the universal leadership and universal ability to distribute the public goods. One of the things about uh, the liberal world order is that there is a tendency to be able to categorize states as either free states or not free states. And one of the things that I was really struck in looking at the Staying Sane report uh, was the section, The Great Equalizer. And I was particularly drawn to the mention of Michel Foucault because I'm a great reader of Michel Foucault and, and his notion of biopolitics in breaking down this dichotomy of, quote-unquote, free and unfree states. Can you uh, perhaps elaborate on this notion of, of this breaking down the, the dichotomy? Yeah, this is uh, part of a report which was written by another colleague of us, so <laughs> he, he, would be, he would be better in explaining, but I can just uh, briefly try to give my, my point, yeah. The idea, the idea of, this, <clears throat> of this section was that actually a pandemic created a unique situation when due to objective reasons, due to nature of this calamity, all countries, be it democratic, non-democratic, authoritarian, totalitarian, free, unfree, they had to take same measures to, 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 in attempts to uh, stop uh, this um, infection. And uh, on the one hand, uh, of course, many of those uh, measures seen uh, isolated seen theoretically, are uh, moving all of us towards uh, much more unfree society, much less freedom and much more control. I read a couple of very funny articles uh, in American press and European press with, uh, uh, which uh, tried to explain that, yes, we do the same as in China, but we do it differently. And in China, this is a, uh, this is a sign of... Uh, uh, growing uh, dictatorship, while in uh, uh, democratic uh, countries, this is just for people to, to stay safe. And so this is very funny, but in fact, measures are the same, like infrastructures created are the same. And why uh, biopolitics is mentioned, uh, the, uh, again, the nature of, uh, of disease, the nature of plague, is that in order to protect your health, physically protect people, you need to take their health and their behavior more and more under control, even in terms of bi bi biology. So, and that might, of course, uh, we don't know how it will uh, develop, but uh, many specialists tell us now, uh, epidemiologists and uh, other uh, people, uh, physicians, that most likely those kind of problems will uh, repeat. And then uh, all those measures uh, under uh, authoritarian or democratic umbrella and, and slogan, they will be needed uh, over and over again. And uh, who knows what kind of society we will get at the end. So the, those uh, famous uh, writings from uh, 
uh, 30s and 40s about terrible uh, totalitarian future, which, as people believed at that time, would generate from totalitarian regimes like communist and uh, uh, nazist. But now we see that uh, maybe the real danger will come from a completely different angle. Yeah, and this is one of the main main theses that Foucault put forward, that it's actually this sur- this expansion of surveillance of the bios of people's actual bodies and the manipulation and control and regulation of them is where uh, t- a kind of totalitarianism would come from. So, Well, uh, generally, this part of the debate uh, is not supported by my theoretical congregation, as you could understand from my previous... From what I've been saying. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, well, I think that uh, the important, uh, the other thing is to, to mention is that in uh, his novel, uh, 1984, George Orwell doesn't mention any ideological differences between two empires. So, uh, basically, the nature of the regime in two fighting empires is not about the ideology, it is about the control. Uh, and in this sense, the previous Cold War between Soviet Union and the U.S. was uh, not very much similar with this anti-utopia, which uh, George Orwell describes in, describes in his famous novel. Uh, but uh, the future might give us some indicators to be to be to be to be careful about. So, and finally, um, you know, your report, the Staying Sane report, ends very pessimistically on the future. Um, you know, are there any reasons to feel optimistic about the next decade, decade and a half moving forward? Is, is it that pessimistic? I, I, I don't. felt it was... <laughs> I also don't, I, don't feel very pessimistic with the conclusion of our report. Huh, okay. Because <laughs> I... I <laughs> well, then maybe this is me, more about me than it is about you. <laughs> Well, you well. Let's say this: you do point, you do point to the let put. In, you can add this to the to the answer. Um, you do point to uh, the need to maybe a, a reassurgence or a reimportance of the United Nations as something as as an institution that maybe can, you know, maintain our sanity. So, but at any rate, I, I felt the conclusion was quite pessimistic. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that uh, even though we are now going away from the liberal international settlement, we still enjoy the enormous privilege to live in the, in the nuclear world order, which is the most stable among the all, all international world orders during the history of the sovereign states. It is, most, it is the most stable, the nuclear world order is most stable because the war is irrational. The war is suicidal, uh, as it has never been before. And this is, in my view, a very serious factor of stability and a very serious factor why we can look to the future with a certain amount of the optimism. Oh, that, that, that's, that's interesting, uh, your perception, because when we prepared this report, we had, uh, among all contributors, we had a very uh, intense discussion. And uh, uh, most of uh, colleagues uh, uh, said that how long we will write uh, about disasters only. 
let us uh, write something uh, more, um, if not uh, optimistic, then at least uh, to give some uh, some light at the end of the tunnel. And we tried to do it, but of course, the, the <laughs> maybe we failed. Uh, I think that uh, we we spoke uh, quite a lot about UN uh, here in this in this conversation, and this is most important. And that was mentioned several times in different reports by uh, Valdai Club and uh, in many of our writings. With all problems associated with the UN, and there are many, and a lot of criticism, including criticism from the United States now to the uh, uh, WHO and so on is uh, quite quite grounded, but this is not the main substance of the United Nations. The main substance is to prevent world war, not agencies which uh, do with uh, uh, refugees or uh, or um, uh, diseases, but just to 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 prevent big powers to repeat what they did uh, in the first half of twentieth century, and. Fortunately, we see so far that this function is working and veto right is respected by all involved despite irritation and fury and so on. And this is that that gives us a glimpse of optimism that if it persists, if, if we will be able to keep this, then fortunately all other problems will be solved uh, not immediately but uh, in the future. You've been listening to Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the Graduate Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The theme music is focused by A.A. Alto. Until next time, bye. Bye.